Tonight's Bible reading comes from Judges chapter 4, verses 1 to 24, um, and it's on page 192 of the Pew Bibles. I'll just give you a second to get that up. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Haggayim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinom, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Haber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Habab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananin near Kadesh. When they had told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned the Harasheth Haggayim to the Kishon River, all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor, with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Haggayim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Haber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If anyone comes by and asks you, is anyone in here, say no. But Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jibin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jibin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Thank you, Chloe. Whoa, hello. What a passage, hey? Some intense details in that. Um, and some funny names. But all the more, it's God's word, and it's useful for us. And so I trust that as I preach, whether it's good or bad and indifferent, 
that God's Spirit will be at work amongst us. Thank you for that, Lachlan, wherever you are. Uh, but no, we do want to approach God's Word, and we trust that as we come before Him, as we worship God, as we hear His prayers, as we particularly come before His Word, that the Holy Spirit will be at work amongst us. Whether we've been traveling with Jesus for 50 years or investigating Him, whatever it may be. So I'm going to pray in that regard, and then we're going to approach this passage together. Father God, we thank you for your word. You are good and you are gracious and you are kind. Father, we do pray that as we come before it to a text that's written thousands of years ago, we trust that you will teach us, that you will make your words come through me and that you will be at work in us by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the 23rd of May in 1939, just the other day, there was a U.S. submarine by the name of Squalus. It was a built for the U.S. Navy, and it was doing some routine test dives off the east coast of the U.S. Now, on this particular occasion, it had done 18 dives. It was looking pretty good. But on the 19th dive down into the depths off the U.S. coast, the main induction valve failed. Now, the main induction valve is the part that lets the fresh air in when the submarine is surfaced. So as that happened, as you can imagine, all this water started filling the submarine. Half the crew perished immediately. The other half were able to seal off the sub, that, the part that was getting flooded. And the sub sank, plummeted to the floor of the sea. 33 sailors are left, enclosed in a watery prison, soon to become a watery tomb. Now, a rescue operation had never been conducted to that depth in, at that time. Now, one began, and they found the sub, and they searched for it. And as some uh, scuba divers were going down across the submarine, they heard some tappings. The tappings of Morse code. Is there any hope? All that the stricken sailors can do is ask in their impossible situation with no way to save themselves, is there any hope? And we too can find ourselves in a world asking, is there any hope? Now I heard, heard a meme or saw, yeah, heard about a meme the other day that said um, 20 years ago we had Johnny Cash, Bob Hope and Steve Jobs. Now we have no cash no hope and no jobs. Please, God, don't let Kevin Bacon die. If you're into bacon, then you can appreciate that. But on a more serious note, sometimes we feel like we're without hope or fearful or losing hope. There's economic uncertainty. There is wars that rage on. There's a pandemic that never seems to end. We think about what's going on in the climate and we can feel helpless, hopeless in what's going on. The rich and the powerful just seem to be way beyond our influence. Maybe a bit more closer to home, our bodies begin to fail us. Friends move on and leave, leaving us lonely. Maybe the options for friendships and relationships wear thin. We're perhaps caught in cycles of addiction or family breakdown, workplace drama. It's kind of never-ending. And we find ourselves hearing the tappings. Is there any hope? 
And this is the scene that we're kind of thrust into as we look at Judges chapter 4. Now, it's often the scene that we find as we look through all these kind of judges that Israelites find themselves in a place uh, which is a little bit hopeless. But this scene is particularly hopeless, and they're against an enemy that is particularly fearful. And we're thrust in this picture of hopelessness. Uh, Chloe read it before, and please do have the Bible open in front of you to trek along with us. Some of it will be on the screen. And as we look at the first verses, we see the kind of cycle that we expect to see in Judges happen again. It says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud, the previous judge, was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. This is in the north of Israel. And Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in H-squared town because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. So naturally, they cry out to God for help. This is the situation they're in. Doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, but now handed over to this foreign Canaanite ruler, Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, he has a mercenary leader. He's kind of paid this guy to be his oppressor, Sisera. Now, Sisera has 900 chariots clad with iron. Now, in that day, that is like the equivalent for us of like armored tanks, nuclear warfare in the face of guns, right? This is a hugely more powerful army than the Israelites had. They just got foot soldiers. For Israel, this is an impossible situation. They have absolutely no chance, no hope against this enemy. It is a state of absolute hopelessness for them. It is a cry out for help. It is the tappings of the Morse code that we heard those sailors call out with. Now, at this point, we're expecting God to show up, right? We're in Judges, we're expecting God God is going to do something here. But something unusual happens. We meet a new character. We meet Deborah. We kind of begin to ask, is she kind of the seed of hope? Is this where this story is going? Have a look with me from verse 4. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidaoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Now, Deborah is a little bit out of the blue here. Uh, we didn't expect to meet her. And she's not a military leader. So she's not following the trend. What's going on here? Now, there's some really significant things about this character, Deborah. Now, we can't read Hebrew. I can't read Hebrew either. But the intelligent people that can tell me that what's going on here is that the author is saying loud and clear something different is happening. There's a woman on the scene, right? In the Hebrew writing, they can say lots of things that kind of emphasize um, femininity. So they have masculine words, feminine words. Anyway, seven times the author is using feminine language when he really doesn't have to. He is saying there is a woman leading Israel. Now, interpreters have a lot of differences about how you should think about what's going on here with Deborah. Uh, there's sort of various things, but I want to point out what is undeniable, what is really clear, what is uh, really obvious or powerful uh, that is going on here for Deborah. Now, what is clear is that God has gifted, he has appointed, he has chosen a woman named Deborah. He has chosen a woman to lead Israel. 
He's anointed her, uh, he's raised her up, and she is given the full respect of the people. Now, it's the same for us today, and as we see the same happen in the New Testament. We want to see the women of God raised up. We want to see the women of God having integrity, speaking the prophetic words of God, having a fearless faith like Deborah, leading in the places that God has placed you if you were a woman. And if you're a man, helping that woman to be in those places like Lapidaoth was doing, kind of the unsung hero in a little bit of a way here. Like I have two young daughters, they're very young at the moment, two and four, well, almost three. And as I was preparing this, I was like, convicted a little bit. Man, I'm going to be praying for more my daughters about what God is going to do in and through them into the future. Praying that God will use them to be fearless, faithful women. That God will use in whatever circumstance he places them. That's kind of the first thing we definitely see about the character of Deborah here. But we also see about her is that she is not the deliverer judge. She is not the military leader. That's not her role to do. But as the prophet of God, as God's anointed to be his mouthpiece, she calls on a man named Barak. And she commissions Barak to deliver Israel. And that's what we read in verse 6. She sent for Barak. And she said this, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, their two tribes that are part of Israel, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give you into his hands. There is a seed of hope here. God is saying through Deborah to this man, Barak, Barak, you have my full assurance, my full direction. God is saying, I will fight for you. Barak, your job is to rock up. Your job is to have faith, to obey me, to turn up. God is saying, I'll deliver Sisera into your hands. I have the battle plan. I'll make the victory happen. Arise and go. Kind of like if you were to rock up at a restaurant, the meal is prepared for you, it's ordered, it's cooked, it just rocks up as you arrive and you enjoy that meal. Barak, it's ready for you, you have faith, you go and enjoy the blessings that will come. So we read, Barak arose, defeated Sisera king of, uh, and Jabin king of Canaan and Israel had peace. We don't read that, do we? We read something very different. We, he replies to Deborah, the prophet of God in verse 8, if you go with me, I will go. But if you do not go, I will not go. Now, we haven't heard any questioning from a judge before, have we? Usually, the judge gets raised up, they go, they do the work, and God saves. Here, it's a bit different. Here, Barak hesitates. He fears. He questions. Now, in his life, he has exceptional reason to question, doesn't he? 900 chariots. He has not a chance. The Israelites are just going to be squashed. They have not a human chance in the world of defeating Sisera. He looks at the enemy and freezes, stuck in his tracks. And friends, we can just be like that. We can be like Barak. God calls us and we fear. We look at the problem that is ahead of us. We look at the barriers and we focus on all that could go wrong and not respond in faith. When God calls us perhaps to give or to seek justice, to throw off our idols, to serve him in a ministry, to go to our neighbors, to go across to the ends of the earth, 
we can naturally think about the enemy, naturally think about the barriers, the problems, the, the fear that can arise from that. We might not respond in faith, but respond in fear, hesitation. And that is what we see in Barak. But Deborah is fearless. And God doesn't chuck him to the curb either. Deborah, being the upright and model woman that she is, she responds. And again, in the words um, of God and herself, she says, Surely I will go with you. But because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Deborah went with Barak. Barak went and Deborah went up with him. Barak, we see here, has a faltering faith. And because of that, the blessing that he could have from the honor of trusting God fully is taken away from him. And we see it's going to go to a woman. That is unusual again. Well, is Deborah or is it someone else? We're kind of left in suspense at this point. But what we see is a bit of a change in Barak. We see an element of faith come through. Now, Barak could have obeyed God and fully uh, at the start, but he didn't. But why should he have? It's not to be just mindless, robotic kind of faith. Yeah, God, you said, so I'll do it. I don't care. No, God is his Lord. God is to be his king, so he is to go. But also, God is trustworthy. And at this point in history, God has already proved his trustworthiness to the Israelites. Back in the Exodus narrative, when the Israelites were going through the Red Sea, they had chariots chasing after them. God destroyed those chariots in the Red Sea. In Joshua, there was chariots from the Canaanite army who was against Joshua. Again, God destroyed those chariots. God has given his full assurance to Barak, and it's proven that he is faithful. But Barak's faith was faltering. God had proved faithful, but he faltered. Then we pick up the story again, verse 11. Barak goes off, and Sisera has heard that he's gone off to Mount Tabor. And Sisera kind of summons his army with the 900 chariots of iron. Right to the location that Deborah said from God that Sisera would go. You already see God's hand being at work here. Sisera is kind of like an elephant at this point, coming to squash the mouse of Israel. Right? Israel have no chance. It is looking way on Sisera's side. But then Deborah says to Barak, Go! This is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has the Lord not gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army fell by the sword. And then Sisera got down and fell and went off by foot. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Before, and we see like a, a kind of change in Barak, because before Deborah said go and Barak hesitated. Here, she says go and Barak goes. He has faith. And just as kind of a side, I, I love this about our God. Because man, we often falter, we often fail, we don't often have complete faith, but God doesn't kick us to the curb. He uses those things to shape us, to mold us, and gives us a second chance. And we see in Barak that, uh, that he does have faith. Now, it says that as Barak advanced, the Lord routed Sisera, and we're kind of given no detail. Now, we're covering chapters 4 and 5, and if you flicked over to chapter 5, which is a song of celebration about what has happened, uh, we get a bit more of a glimpse in verse 23. Um, it said that, was it 23? 21, 21. 
The river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. March on my soul, be strong. The picture here is this river Kishon, which is typically a stream and it's probably dry season, which is why Sisera went into it, not expecting any water, is now flooded with water. Like a raging river, like white horses of whitewashed carries away Sisera and his army, leaving them in the mud. The chariots, which are like the most powerful thing of his army, are now the liability. God has turned the greatest, greatest strength into a liability of the enemy. God is the one who is faithful. God is the one who is in the battle. Barak has just rolled on up and enjoyed the victory. With my kids, often we will like involve them in certain things that I have absolutely no help in. They are useless in the task in a sense. Say like cooking, for example, we might invite them to like um, help with us with a bit of mixing or putting it in the oven or something like that. But we really don't need them. But we invite them to be part of what's going on. And they get the blessing and the joy of being part of it. It is the same here for Barak and the same for us. God is the victor, but the faithful are the ones that are blessed. And brothers and sisters, I think what this kind of screams out to us is that God uses our availability, not our ability. God uses our availability, not our ability. Because it was never in the Israelites' ability to win. It was always going to be God's victory, God's power. They were just to respond in faith. They got in the game. They had faith. They obeyed. It was going to be always God's business to do the saving. It was not their availability, but their ability. And friends, it can be very much the same in our day. In the New Testament, we read that God has given us his Holy Spirit, that for his people means we have gifts and things that he uses for us to achieve his purposes, to feel his presence and to go with him on um, what he calls us to. He provides the ability for what we need. One time in my life where that was really obvious to me was when I went on a mission trip with a team sent by here in 2018. And on that trip, pretty much everything that could go wrong went on that went wrong there was on the day we got there there was missionary exposure which meant we couldn't do what we we're going to do we we're in a gas explosion there was earthquakes uh, there was emergency surgery but it's kind of look back on it all God's hand was in and through it all the time he was using our availability and not our ability because he completely changed our direction and sent us to a team that was in a different island that hadn't had teams for months and months and months were feeling very unencouraged uh, because of a series of earthquakes and we're in need of some additional manual labor. And so God, in his sovereignty and in his power, changed the course of our events and our directions for his good purposes, even if they were completely different from our own. What we consistently see throughout God and his word is that he is 100% trustworthy, and he will provide, he will bring the victory. He will bring about his good purposes, and we are blessed to be part of it. He uses our availability, not our ability. Now, as we kind of return to the narrative here in Judges, we skipped over verse 11. If you were kind of tracking along, you would have noticed that. We skipped over verse 11 because verse 11 was a bit out of nowhere. It kind of introduced this guy, Heber the Kenite, and he seems like a bit of disgruntled character that has kind of left his other mates and then gone off in the wilderness and kind of camped there. We left him there, but now we pick up again where that, little note becomes relevant. We read on from verse 17. 
there's a new twist in the narrative. Sisera flees. He gets away from the Israelites. He flees on foot to a tent of Jael. Jael's a woman, the wife of Heber the Kenite. This guy, the angry guy that's kind of left off in the middle of nowhere. But they have an alliance, Heber and Jibin. So Jael went out to meet Sisera. Come in, come in. I'll look after you, basically. Come right in. She ent- he entered the tent. He covered her with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. So she opened up a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. That might seem a bit backward. And he asked for water, gave him milk. What's going on there? What she's doing there is giving him like the best, right? It's like if someone asked you for water and then you go to like your sparkling machine with a chilled glass and a sprinkle of lemon. And if you're into sparkling water, that would be ideal, I suppose. If you don't like sprinkling water, that would suck. But nonetheless, really good, okay? He's giving him something that is going to disarm him. And he's feeling somewhat safe and secure now in his ally's tent. He kind of barks at her, verse 20. Stand in the door of the tent, he told her. And if someone comes by and asks you, is someone there, say no. But Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted, and drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground. And the author kindly says, and he died. If we needed that detail. That is unexpected salvation through a completely unexpected source. A foreign woman who isn't even an Israelite has now served justice against this oppressive king. We read about him more in chapter 5, where he is an abuser of women. And here we have a woman that God has used to administer justice on this man. What we see after that, verse 23 and 24, is that Jabin, king of Canaan, is subdued and destroyed. God is completely in control of this whole narrative. The whole time, all the things that go on. God is the one who raised Deborah to be his prophetic voice to Israel. He then uses Deborah to raise Barak, his judge. He calls all the shots of the battle. Everything happens according to his plan. He floods the river, destroys the chariots. And now he uses a disgruntled family to bring justice through a woman who, for we don't know why, wants to kill Sisera. God is orchestrating the victory and is completely sovereign. He can use the faithful, he can use the flawed, he can use the faulty for his good purposes. And friends, you might be sitting here today and thinking, God cannot use me. You might be thinking, man, surely I have nothing to offer. Now, what we see in Judges is that God can use anyone. He uses Deborah in a very highly patriarchal society. He uses a faltering barrack to lead the army. And he uses a seemingly random woman to bring justice. God can use whomever he wants to bring about his good purposes. And as we kind of track this into the New Testament, we see that God has gifted his people by his spirit for service in the world. And in places like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, he's gifted us, called us to participate with God in his service, in his mission to the world. So if you feel weak, if you feel flawed, if you feel faulty, perhaps all the better. God can use you when you're most humble. We just have faith. He will receive the glory and we are blessed. God is faithful. He brings deliverance to his people. And that's kind of the picture and the image that we're left with 
at the end of this story of chapter 4. But then we get the response. And the response is actually this poetic and really um, glorious song, which is chapter 5. So Deborah and Barak, they break out in a song. Now, we didn't have this read for us before, and we won't go through all the details. But I want to pick out three things that are kind of central to this song, uh, which is yeah, central to it and applicable to us. The first one is that we need to have a theological perspective on what happens in our lives. See, Deborah, she witnesses and is part of everything that goes on in the history of that battle. She's part of the actual events, but her response is to see God in those events. In verse 4, it said, when the Lord went out, right? Deborah is prophesying, Barak is charging, Jael is hammering, but God is the one who is before them and going out, doing it all. And like Deborah, we too are to have a theological perspective on our lives. Because it's so easy. I know I do this all the time. You kind of recount the historical events of your life. I did this, this happened, and then I went over here and got married to Elizabeth, and then I did this job and this and that, now I'm here. And you kind of you forget how it is or don't recognize how it is that God has been at work in and through all those things, how he's been shaping us. And so can I suggest to us that we should have a Judges 5 outlook on our life. And a practice you could do is continue to do your testimony. Perhaps a suggestion is do your testimony over the last two years. What is it that God has been doing in you, through you, around you? We're really good at writing testimonies for baptisms as we become a Christian. But what about as we are a Christian for years and years and years? Continue to see how God is at work. He never stops working in our life. But sometimes we need to stop to recognize what it is that God has been doing. Perhaps you will be a bit surprised. The second thing about the song, though, is that it's not all joy and it's not all praise. A lot of it is. A lot of it is a celebration, but there's elements that are not. Because some Israelites come to the fight and some do not. It is on the screen. Have a look at verse uh, 13. She's gone on. She's spoken about how the volunteers have come, praise the Lord, um, conquering then she goes on. The remnants of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin, who was with the people who followed you. From Machir, captains came down. From Zebulun, uh, they came down as well. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak. They were under his commands. But then it changes. In the districts of Reuben... There was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens? To hear the whistling of the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. It's like, will I go? Won't I go? I'm called to go, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Maybe I'll just stay amongst where it's comfortable. That's not my responsibility to go. I'll stay listening to the harm of the flocks. I'll stay listening and engaged into the suburban Sydney life where it's comfortable, where it's safe. Listening to the flocks. He goes on. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher reigned by the coast and stayed in the coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives and so did Naphtali on the terraced fields. Dan, they're staying by the ships where economic prosperity is booming. 
they'll stay there. They'll keep doing that. Not following God's call. Looking at it, that's not my fight. That's not something for me to be a part of. So they don't come. This begs the question for us, are we coming to serve the Lord? Are we going to stay by the ships? Or are we going to be like Zebulun and Aphtali, serving hard in the workplace, in the home, in the marketplace, in ministry, at church? Some of us are like Dan, sitting on the sidelines in the ships. I think you may have heard the saying, 20% of people do 80% of the work. Friends, we do not want to be a church like that. Sure, we're gifted in all sorts of different ways to do things of our own capacity, but we all want to be part of what God is doing here together. There is unlimited ways for us to be part of God's work in the world, in the marketplace, in the home, in the workplace, at ministry and church. You want to be involved in something, let us know. I had the joy of two people coming to me this week saying, I'd love to be involved in something. I don't know what, but I'm keen to be involved. What a joy. We want all of us to be partnering together, part of God's mission to this world. We want to enable you and equip you uh, to be part of that, to come and to serve with us, to be part of what God is doing. Sometimes we can still be left asking, is there any hope? See, in that stricken ship, that submarine squalus, 74 meters down below the surface, those helpless sailors are sitting in their watery prison expecting it to become their tomb. And for them, salvation could only come from above. The leader of the the rescue event was named Lieutenant Charles Monson. And he developed a plan using an airtight chamber to go on top of the submarine never used before uh, to free them. It was sent down, a watertight seal was put around the submarine and the 33 survivors were rescued. All of them freed. Needless to say, there was great celebration for them. There was hope. For the Israelites, there was hope. That is why Barak and Deborah, they sing out, they praise God in song. We will sing to the Lord, we will praise the Lord, the God of Israel. We will sing to the Lord. The response is song. For us, friends, there too is hope. You may feel hopeless, but there is hope. And its most greatest and most magnificent vision of that is we live on the, great, the other side of the most greatest salvation event that has ever been in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Right? We were in need of saving God sent Jesus. In response, we are to repent, have faith, and we praise God. But we also are all the things that we are called to be in this passage. It is for that reason... And because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can respond in faith in times of fear. We can be confident that God uses our ability, not our availability. We can be confident that God will use us in his mission to the world and enjoy the blessing that comes as a result of that. And we can be confident that God is always at work. He hasn't stopped. He continues to be at work amongst his people. And we can be confident the ultimate victory has been won and that Jesus will return again and will enjoy blessing for all of our days. Let me pray for us. Our loving God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who steps into the mess. We thank you that you give us hope in times of fear. Father, we know that we can walk through times of trial and sometimes you don't change the circumstance, but thank you that you are with us. 
Yeah, Father, we read in Hebrews 13 that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. And Father, we, I pray that you help us to know that for, for every moment of our life. And please bring about your good purposes in us. Please use us despite our weakness. We long to be part of your saving work in this world. And we thank you that you allow us to be your partners. Please empower us by your Holy Spirit. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.